All right. Um, this is Writing Excuses, uh, Season 2, Episode 1, recording live from um, MountainCon in Leighton, Utah. We're going to do questions and answers from the audience, but uh, first let's introduce our special guest, John hey, Brown. Are we already dropping the 15 minutes? No, no, no. We'll give it. Oh, yeah. We'll, okay, go ahead. Yeah. That's, good, that's good, actually my bit. He does it. Do it, do it, Howard. It's season two when you've already forgotten how the podcast we works. We need the typing. No, no, no. 15 no. minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we are so obviously not that smart. What? It's just me. Um, how? Okay, John Brown. Hey, tell us about yourself. Well, um, been writing for a long time. Finally broke in, got a great free book deal from Tor. First book will be out probably September of 2009. Congratulations. Don't show it's called off your Servants fancy of a Dark book. God. Servants of a Dark God. Yeah. Okay, that's scary. Epic fantasy. Okay. Um, and uh, John has consented to come and hang out while we take questions from the audience. So, um, hit us. Who's got a question? Okay. What is the perfect relationship between character and setting? And how do you develop it? From Ken, is that your name? Yeah. Okay. Uh, John. <laughs> <laughs> Pun. Well, I, I don't know that there is a perfect relationship between character and setting, besides the fact that you want somebody that could be in that setting. But however, having said that, some of the best stories come along when you have people that don't belong to that setting. And, and so you obviously have things like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, right? Or you have just the fish out of water stories. We have somebody from the city who goes out to the country. So uh, I, I don't know that there's a perfect, perfect relationship. Wait, when you say, hang on, when you say relationship, do you mean relationship between these two or do you mean proportional relations, their amounts in your story, how much you talk about setting? No, the relationship. Okay. Relationship. All right. Um, I'm going to say that um, for me, and I, I hate to be a broken record since we're actually on MP3, um, but, oh, come on, that was funny. Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> Sorry, thanks. late with the drum kit. Yeah, um, I would say that the perfect setting um, and character relationship has to do with conflict. It's really all about the conflict. And when I'm, um, I'm writing a book, and I like to have very invasive, very interesting settings, but I always say it, that your setting is only as interesting as the character, the reader is interested in the characters. Um, if the setting is not having an effect, an influence on the characters, then why is it there? It can be as cool as you want to make it, but no one will care, I don't think. Um, and so look for conflict. Put the character in conflict with the setting somehow. Um, that doesn't have to necessarily mean man versus nature. It can be man versus religion. That's part of your setting. Or man versus, but make the character in contrast. Um, I wrote a book. All my books are weird, as we know from past podcasts. I wrote one that had the weirdest setting and I had to do a character from outside of it because the people inside of this setting um, understood it too well. And so the only way to get the reader into it was to have the main character stand in for the reader in that sense as an outsider. It had to work that way because an insider in that setting wouldn't have worked. And so you have to also consider what, what your purpose is with the book if you need your character to relate to the setting in a, in a particular way. On the other hand, you know, sometimes you definitely need your main character to be an insider in order to explain what you need to have explained. Yeah. yeah you can't have the setting driving the plot. You can have the setting resulting in events 
which result in characters making decisions that drive the plot, yeah. but you can't have the setting driving the plot forward. It's got to be character-driven or we'll get bored. If the sandworms are going to eat Paul, we're scared because we care about Paul. Now, the sandworms are awesome, and we like that there are giant worms under the ground that are going to eat us, um, but you know, that's only, it's only cool in relationship to the fact that it's working with the character, in my opinion. So the perfect relationship is the, the setting drives the characters to drive the plot. That, that's a very good way of putting it, the, the sandworms. The sandworms are not cool in and of themselves. They're only cool when they're eating someone or when someone yes. is riding them or something like that. Only in relationship to the characters do the sandworms make any sense at all. Uh, let's take another question. All right, question number two. Who else has one for us? Okay. Wow, great, great question. Um, Which we need to repeat because yeah. there's no way anybody heard that. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, go ahead, repeat it, Dan. Can okay. you do it? He, he said, this is, this is Eric Jamestone, our good friend, and he said he has often been accused of writing stories that take place in a white room, and that's because he does not uh, provide a lot of visual detail in it. And so he's asking how or you know, what's the best way to provide visual detail into a story? Yeah, what are the be how do you choose the details? What do you do, John? Um, well, well, my first question is, or my first response is, well, I don't, I don't think you always need That's setting. true. It, um, is, it isn't always necessary because there are some effects. Some stories, the, the whole effect of the story has really little to do with that. I know there's some Orson Card stories. Yeah, there where, are. Where he has stuff. Yeah. And, and there's Heinlein stories where he has stuff. And it doesn't really matter. So if, if it's important to the story and it's something that jazzes you, then that's something, that's a time when you want to put it in. Though I'm going to say that um, a lot of people read fantasy for setting detail because of the sense of wonder that it evokes. Well, fantasy. Being in somewhere else, see, yeah. another place. Science fiction, I think, is, um, does have a, a tradition. You can probably, you can do this in fantasy too, but um, Orson Scott Card's a great example. The, the Bean books in particular are very sparse on, on setting detail. They're almost like they're stage plays um, in some places. Um, and, and that works, um, but, you know, I like setting detail. I like to read setting detail. Um, and it's part of the reason why I like the Robert Jordan books. Part of the reason why people hate those books is because of how much setting detail. But I love them <laughs> because of that. And so I think it is a valid question, particularly if you're going to be writing fantasy. Um, you know, if you're, if you're writing something in a white room where the setting really doesn't matter, it's a little bit like a meal served in a restaurant where the ambiance is irrelevant. And the only restaurants I can think of where ambiance is irrelevant is... Uh, fast food. Wait a and minute, did you just compare Orson Scott Card to fast food? No, I compared Eric oh, James okay. to fast food. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I so, think, I think so. Scott could to totally take you. I'm sure he yeah. could, but he's getting up there in years now, of course, oh, and yeah. I just turned 40. So anyway, <laughs> but I'm not saying that, that there's anything wrong with fast food, uh, per se. I'm, I'm not trying to cheapen uh, the writing. Mm -hmm. What I'm suggesting is that there are stories that support themselves just fine without the need for external ambience, and there's, okay. there's stories that don't. Okay. Epic okay. fantasy doesn't work that way. No. Today's Writing Excuses is brought to you by Writing Excuses, the CD. Season one, all packed onto one disc, nine hours long, because you're no longer in that much of a hurry. And we are geniuses. Available at poddisc.com and wherever fine poddisc.com CDs are sold. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 getting around to actually answering the question instead of justifying oh, its existence. We're not going to do that. Um, Answer. <laughs> 
A great example of this, I think, are the Rune Lords books by David Farland, which are just oozing with visual and sensory detail. And I know from talking to him that a lot of the way he does that is he keeps reference books next to his computer. And if he's about to describe a character, he will open it up, flip to you know some picture of a person in medieval costume, and then he will describe that costume, and then he will go back to writing. And uh, I think it works very well. And so keeping visual reference books near at hand is a great way to add that kind of detail in. Um, I think we've said it before um, that one of the, the best ways to do this, well, I think it was you, Dan, who said... Um, if it was intelligent, it probably oh, was. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it, it was, it's throw something very important, understate, and something not so important, overstate mm -hmm. um, in your details. And I think that actually does work very well when you've got a very visceral sensory detail. When someone walks in the room and they can smell how the coffee smells that's coming out of the cup of someone who's sitting there, and you'd give a very lush description of the coffee, it gives us a very strong sense of setting. But then if you downplay some of the big, you know, the, they've got this, um, this cool technical Also, the room's on fire. No, I wasn't saying that. <laughs> I'm more like, you know, he pushed yeah. the, you know, the data pad, and you don't describe yes. that because it's every day to him, but when the character walks in the room, he doesn't, you know, it's like, wow, that's great coffee. I wish I, yeah, I had a cup of that, and you give this great lush description of it. It's going to set out the world, and I think it really is those sensory details. Um, I look for, um, you know, I'm not the most descriptive writer out there. Um, what I look to do is I like, I try for lush minimalism. I don't know if that's possible. It's like, it, it's <laughs> fighting with itself, but what I want to do is I occasionally want to give a just really good lush description to give you the feeling that you're, you're in the world, and then keep it sparse through the conversations and things like that, and that's what I like to do. Um, and so in, in my books, you'll really feel, you'll, you'll notice the, the mist or the, the ash quite a bit. And you'll have occasional just, just really powerful scents or smells. Well, those are the same thing. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I've been at this con for two days, and I'm kind of worn out. Somebody else say something. Oh, I, I, I have something I want to add to this. <laughs> you know, something that I found, and, I'm, and I do this regularly, is I have authors who I love. And I don't know, Eric, if this goes to your, to your question, but I have authors who I love who do things in a certain way. Bernard Cornwell does, does description in one way, right? Uh, Dan Co or Dean Koontz does it another way. And if I go and look at their books, and I say, boy, that really transported me to the, to the locale, and I get out a crayon or a colored pencil, and open those pages and start just drawing a line down, the passages where they're doing that, after about 30 or 40 pages, I, I know their tricks. They're just right there in front of me because I'm looking for them. And Don't so that's, that's another way to, to figure out how to put that the, in. The curtain? What? No, what was that? Never mind. It's quoting the Wizard of Oz. About revealing oh, the man behind yeah. the curtain. Um, okay, let's do another question. This time, let's actually have someone come up and say it into the mic so we don't have to repeat it because I think we're getting dead air. Um, I'm just going to cut that out. Oh, are you? Jordan's just going to cut it out? Wow, you're so cool. And this whole conversation? This is, man, yeah. what? And, and half the stuff you guys are saying anyway. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just that's what a producer okay. is for. All right, go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, That's what characters do best. Do characters ever deviate from the plot plan you plan for them? Um, Short answer, Peter, always. Yes. Yeah. yeah, they do. They really actually do. Um, and different writers approach this in different ways, and I think it's a good thing to talk about. How do you approach it when your characters um, are, are doing something that you don't want them to do or you didn't plan for them to do? We'll start with John, and we'll just kind of go down the line. Well, I... That, that happens all the time, and uh, I have a couple of responses to it. One response is, uh, I'm bored with the story. And so, obviously this means I'm bored with the story. I've got to take it somewhere else. 
where do I need to go? If this character has hijacked my story, it means it's more interesting than everything else I was doing. So that's, that's one way, and I just follow the character and say, okay, let's do take, take two. Let's see where this character takes me and, and see how it's going. Another way is I say, well, whatever's going on, I need to change it so that it is interesting to me. And so I'll go back and invent and, and say, that character's hijacking the story. I really love this. What was wrong with the original plot line? Let me fix it, find something that is interesting, and then I can go back on that original plot line. But, but the, the, the last thing, the last point I want to make is that I love it when my characters do this because, or when my ideas, and most, a lot of ideas come while I'm writing, and I love it when that happens because that means I'm, I'm doing things that are surprising to myself it's, it's going to be surprising for the reader as well. And that's yeah. part of the thing that I love about the actual writing is that I get so many new ideas and I have to keep a, an outline that keeps changing as I go along. Howard? Uh, yeah, that comment right there. When I surprise myself, uh, or that is when I surprise myself. The character has decided to do something that I did not foresee in my grand masterful outline of the story. And if I'm surprised, the reader is going to be surprised, usually. Uh, so I'm going to keep it. I, up to that point, boy, that's, that's good. It was surprising. It's, in, it's interesting. I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to roll with it. And one of the reasons I have to do that is that uh, I don't have the luxury of going back yeah. and rewriting things. Rewriting? You authors. <laughs> um, what I tend to do, um, my characters, they don't ever surprise me. Um, I don't look at it that way. Um, when I'm writing along, it, it works more in the kind of aha moments where I say, oh, I could do this. And it's usually chap several chapters down the line. Um, when it's not, I actually um, do go and rewrite up to that point. Um, for me, I like, I'm not one of those ones that, I don't get surprised by my, re my characters, but I do come up with better ways to do what I wanted to do. Or I throw out of the window what I wanted to do because I came up, came up with something better that I want to do. Um, and in that case, I, I do rewriting. Um, and a lot of times, honestly, I'll just go from that point pretending that I've already rewritten it, and I actually tell myself I'll fix it in post, which is, you know, a screenwriting <laughs> term, and then I go back, and in the rewrite, I revise it up to that point. Uh, Dan, you got a yeah, final I, I say here, and then it's the I have two things to say end. on this topic. Very quickly, I want to stress that uh, I've known so many writers who are so obsessed with following their muse that <gasps> they will follow it even if it goes somewhere dumb. And so if your characters take on a life of their own, don't be afraid to smack them around and tell them to follow the plot. Um, and, and so, for example, from my book that I just finished, I had my two characters, my main character and his best friend, were sitting, talking to each other, and all of a sudden they started talking about their fathers, and I did not intend for them to do that. And it was fantastic. It was a great conversation, because they both had absent fathers, and, and it worked really well. That's not the information that needed to be conveyed in that scene. That was a very important scene that needed to talk about something else. But I was able to just cut that conversation out, and that's going into the next book because I think it's going to work really well. But I had to rein them in and say, no, you're not allowed to do that here. We have a plot. Some, some of that reining in process. I know I have to believe in what I'm writing. And so I, I just can't make them follow a plot. I have to believe in what I'm writing. And so if I have to do something like that, sometimes I have to go back and, and figure out why, what would actually be making them do what I need them to do. And I've got to, and I've got to believe, it, believe it. And it might require some writing revising earlier on so that I can get them to the point where I need them to be. Sometimes that just is what you have to do. Okay. Well, we're out of time. Um, thank you, guys, and thanks for the questions. This has been Writing Excuses. Pod to the cast, biz nachos. <laughs> 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.